Well, thanks, Jeff, for reading the couple of long passages. I appreciate it. Um, like I mentioned in the welcome, you know, we are, we are in the midst, well, not really the midst, we're at the tail end now of our series on the purpose and mission of the church. And really, we have looked at several things. Right? We've looked, we started the series out by looking at the biblical call to the church of what the spirit of the church should look like of love and of submission, of care, and of spreading the gospel, really enacting that story. We spent several weeks looking at our culture and what the context is that we find ourselves and how that affects the work of the ministry that we do and why we're going to approach ministry the way that we approach it. And for these next three weeks, as we wrap up the series, we really look at these fronts. You know, George last week talked about fronts and strategies, right? There are three wars that are going on. There are three areas that the church is fighting. There's three things that we have to do, all churches have to do, these universal calls to the church. One is uniting people to God, which is what Paul is doing here in Athens and what she's calling the church to do as well, to be reconciled to God, to be put back into a right relationship with the creator of heaven and earth. This is that first and primary front that the church is doing, uniting people to God. The second one next week, Deirdre will talk about, is uniting people to each other. There's another aspect of the church, and one of those wars that we are waging, that we are fighting for, is to bring peace, shalom, bringing people together. And then that third and final one George will preach on is meeting pressing needs, is what the church is called to do as well. And this first calling, or this first front, Right, that we, we saw in the readings today that we're going to talk about is this being reconciled to God. And I really like the way that Paul gives us this picture, or Luke gives us the picture of Paul in Athens, really showing what the fundamental problem is in a city, in the world, and it really is worship. The lack of proper worship and our greatest need to get into a position where we are rightly worshiping the maker of heaven and earth. Because really, if we look at our lives, and this is not new for many of us, right? I mean, we understand how this plays out. Every human, every person in this world was made for something. We all have these incredibly deep and strong desires and longings for wholeness, for peace, for love, to be right, to have joy. It's, it's what we are all seeking it's as if, right, we were made to be filled up by something. And we look for it our whole life. And all of humanity throughout all of history, right, is seeking something to give us that feeling of rightness, to give us that feeling of fullness, of joy, completeness, something that will make us feel like we are all right. And so what do we do with that feeling, that desire that we were made for? Well, we look for it everywhere. And what that leads to is worship. And we worship anything that we think will make us feel good. Right? We know this. This is our just daily lives. We are all prone to this. We will find anything that we think will give us something that we think will make us right. And we worship it. We bow down to it. We give it our offerings. And this is what Paul says here in Athens, right? You know, I travel through your city, and I see all of the gods that you guys are worshiping. We are in no different context. 
You you walk through the Twin Cities, drive through, right? We see all of the gods that we worship. If it's finances, if it's the arts, if it's power, if it's sports and our various theaters of that, there is no shortage of things, of gods that our culture and then just us worship on a day-to-day level, hoping that this will make me right, this will make me happy. What's so insidious about it, right, and we know this from experience as well, they're good things. We pursue good things even, too, and idolize and hold them up. Mother's Day is a complicated day, right, which is what today is. There's a lot of hopes and a lot of disappointments on Mother's Day, but because a lot of people put hopes in things that are good, but when it becomes your ultimate hope, it will let you down. Your children will not acknowledge you the way that you were hoping they would, or you will not be able to conceive and have children, or you have this hope for a promotion or for a job, and this will make, and it, I mean, this is, this is all of our stories, constantly shifting hopes to different saviors. This is the thing that will make me happy. This will make me complete. Once I have this, I'll finally have peace. And then we get that thing, and we don't have peace. We suffer the natural consequences of worshiping things that we were never meant to worship, which is the state of our world today. Why is there so much conflict? Why is there a lack of peace? Why can't anybody get along? (laughs) Because this is the consequences of generations and generations and generations of people worshiping false gods. We constantly are experiencing the consequences of our misplaced hopes, our misplaced worship. And then you have Paul in Athens, right, telling him, I've got good news for you. That God you've been trying to find your whole life, I can tell you about. The one that you've been seeking after, the one that you've been looking for, and looking for in all of these wrong places, I can point you to him. Because the good news of the gospel is not this message that, hey, I've got good news for you. Here's something you can do to get this all fixed. Or here I have this new thing. If you just follow this path now, you will find enlightenment or peace or joy. If you just do this, I've got good news. I've got a 12-step program for you. And if you just, that's not the good news of the gospel. But the good news of the gospel is that God has reconciled us to God. While we were still sinners, while we were far away from him, right? And this is this whole picture in Athens. While we are worshiping all of these other gods, without us even knowing it, God reconciled us to himself. And we didn't even know. You know, in the Exodus story, if you're familiar with that, and a lot of us are who go through redemption groups and those types of things, the Exodus story is beautiful, right? With You've got Israel in sin at the bottom of Sinai, worshiping other gods, and Moses up on the mountain without them even knowing it, interceding on their behalf, and God forgiving them. They didn't even ask. And God forgave them and reconciled them to himself. This is us. Well, we have been living lives worshiping wrongly. God reconciled us to himself a one-time and for all reconciling work of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that we believe as Christians, that Jesus Christ came. God sent his son to this earth to live the life that we were supposed to live, 
He did it. No one else has ever done it. He actually lived a life of right worship. His heart was oriented right. No one else's has ever been. He was actually faithful to God. He actually fulfilled the law. He actually did what his father's will was. He came and he lived the life that all of us are called to live and are supposed to live. But instead of reaping the benefits of it, right, he willingly took on the punishment for our lives, for lives of unfaithfulness. The one person who deserved the reward of proper worship towards God gave it up so that us, all of us, who will never worship properly, will get the credit for his proper life. This is what happens. This is what that reconciling work is, right? Debts just can't get be forgiven. It's not just a, God can't just say, I'm sorry, it's okay. There's a cost that comes with forgiveness, right? And we know this, right? I mean, if someone, if I lend my car to someone and they smash it up, I can forgive them. But that comes with a cost. I still have to deal with the car. Someone's got to pay for this. This is what Jesus did. Jesus pays the cost to reconcile us back to him, to God. In his death, he takes on the penalty that we all deserve. And in his resurrection, he promises and secures for us the life that we don't deserve. So that everything now that was true of Christ is true of us. This is what it means to be reconciled. It's all been taken care of. It's all been fixed. How is that possible? <laughs> right? That's the good news. We have been wandering our whole lives, seeking after salvation, dealing with the consequences of our misplaced hopes. And then here comes Paul walking into town. Hey, I've got good news. The God that you have been searching after your entire life has already found you and has fixed everything for you. So that, and that picture he gives is so perfect, right? And this is a lot of our stories if you think about how you found God. So that we may feel our way toward him. Right? Isn't that life? Right? Feeling our way towards God. Because God is actively in this world at work, calling us to himself, reconciling us to him. He is here. He is close. He is near. And he just, it's this feeling for him that you may feel out for him and perhaps find him. It just, it feels like that, right? I mean, for those of us who have accepted Jesus Christ and experienced that once and for all reconciling work, right? It does feel like that. Like, I found something. I just, I just came upon this this treasure in a field. <laughs> I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't seek it. I didn't even know it was there. I didn't know what to expect, and it, I, but I found it, and it's a treasure. It's this good news of the gospel that changes our lives forever. God has reconciled me, and now I can worship him. I really know who to worship. I know who the author of life is. I know where salvation is. I know who truly gives life. It's good news. It's the gospel. But it doesn't stop with just that finding. Right? And this is what we need to be reminded of as a church and why we're going through these things. It, the New Testament doesn't just stop 
at the end of John, right? Although for many of us, it feels like it does. Jesus died and he rose. But rather, in the 2 Corinthians passage, right, Paul now talks to those of us who have found this treasure. And it's not just a, once, a one-time deal, this being reconciled to God. We have been saved once and for all, and yet there is still an ongoing saving that happens, an ongoing work of being reconciled to God, a daily saving, a daily need to be reconciled. Paul talks about it here, right? Describes it as a ministry of reconciliation right? for those of us who have been called, for those of us who have been saved, for those of us who have been reconciled to God. Now we have been given ministry. We've been given work to do, this work of reconciliation. Or the way Paul describes it as well in this passage, we now live lives as ambassadors of this king and this kingdom. God is making his appeal through us who have been reconciled. We stand in for God in this world. That's what it means to be an ambassador. Right? An ambassador in a foreign country, right? You know, they, they are the proxies for the government. They stand in for what they say is what they say. What they do is what they do. This comes from above. I represent this. Right? That's an ambassador. And that's what we've all been called to. We have been saved and reconciled in Christ. And now we live lives of reconciliation. We live lives as ambassadors. We live lives of right worship, of modeling, right? This right worship of God. That God is making his appeal through his church. And we know this. If you, I mean, we, we have studied these things. These aren't new ideas to Christians, right? We've heard these concepts, certainly many times, and they get phrased in a lot of different ways, right? You know, if, if this is, you know, people talk about evangelism, the church is called to evangelism, right? That's what that means, right? Telling the good news of the gospel, that's what evangelism is, that, that's what that term means, you know, telling people the good news. Uh, it often is used just talking about, right, spreading the gospel, telling the gospel, preaching the gospel. People talk about building the kingdom, reaching outsiders, this work that we have been called to of reconciling. We experience the freedom and joy and life that comes through the gospel daily in every area of our life, and we demonstrate and explain that same hope in every area of our lives. It's on display. Our life in Christ is on display to the world. As individuals and as a church, we are ambassadors of the gospel of God. this work of uniting people to God, of pointing people to the source, to the true God, and away from all of these false gods in our culture and in our world. This is the universal call and mission of all churches, all Christians everywhere. Right? This is not a new idea. This is very clear in Scripture. But as we've spent the last several weeks talking about, this work is going to look different depending on the church depending on the culture, the season, the strategies, the timing of a particular church. And so we do want to talk about and look at, so what does this work look like for us? 
at Twin Cities Church? How do we do this? How is this fit within our model, within our culture, and with our time? What does it mean for all of us in the church to be faithful to God's commands to do the work of reconciling people to God, of being ambassadors of Jesus Christ? Because a lot of this just becomes white noise, right, in Christianity, if we're honest. We just hear these things, and we feel general pressures to do things. But very often we don't get to the specifics of how we're actually going to, how, how we do these things and what that actually looks like. And so that's what we want to go through each of these three weeks is walk through our strategies and show like how we go about this work of reconciling people to God as a church. And so for us as a church, our structures, which George went over last week, right? We have households, which is all of you, and a household, right? Just Real quick, just to make sure we're clear on this, a household can be one person, a household could be 15 people, right? It's the, you're living in a house, you have a household, that's the biblical term, right? It, you can be single and you are a household, you can, living in an extended family, that's a household, right? Like it's, there's this household idea. So we have households, we have house churches, and then we also have an organized church. So how does this work play out on those, in those levels? Well, we look at the households as, I mean, you, the individuals in the church, these, your families, you are, because it seems to be biblical, the primary witness of Christ in this world. When Paul is saying, you are ambassadors, he is speaking to all of us. We are the primary witness of God in the world. You are. You are Christ's ambassadors in every area of your life, right? And we know this. We have these clear spheres and responsibilities and people who see us every day. Our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, our friends, our spouses, our children. We are witnesses to them of the gospel. Every moment of every day, they see us. And this is why we emphasize so much as a church, in the house church especially, in the teachings that we give, right? Why families are ordered. Why there's such emphasis upon the need for individuals and for families to be reconciled to God and to order their lives around the gospel. Because without that, right, you lose credibility. Right? This is it. The need to be reconciled, the significance of, there's a, there's a reason for that second half of all of the letters in the New Testament. Right, they give you the gospel and then give you, and then this is what that looks like, husbands and wives and coworkers and workers and bosses and children. This is why, right? Because without that, we don't have any credibility in this world. And we've talked about that as a culture. The organized, the organized church has lost almost all credibility. And rightfully so. Right? Because we're racked with scandals and undermining our witness. We, as individuals and families, right, we dedicate ourselves to, to becoming more and more like Christ, following his commands so that we have credibility. We have opportunities in our world to share the gospel, especially in our context, right? If you think about the Twin Cities, it's fairly burned over. That was a term from like kind of New England in the 19th century. They'd have a revival every three months, and eventually it became the burned over district because of just revivals after revivals after revivals. I mean, the Twin Cities is often, it feels very burned over. Everyone has experienced the megachurch. 
everyone has experienced some sort of come to Jesus thing. It's just falling on deaf ears. But the credibility of a lived life in Christ is winsome and appealing. It's where we actually show the gospel on a daily level, each of us, to the people who are around us. Now, as individuals, we do this work of the ministry, right? And the, the bulk of the work of the ministry in Twin Cities Church is on us as individuals. We do the work. We are the primary witness in our lives to, our, to the watching world and family and all of these different spheres. Now, as a house church, the house church functions in the same way as the context and the strength that we need for this work of being reconciled to God ourselves or our families and also of helping others to be reconciled, right? The house church provides a team, right? I mean, if you've been in a house church for any extended period of time, you know this. It, it feels good to not be alone, <laughs> to not be on an island as a family, as a household that is trying to do this work of being reconciled to God and trying to demonstrate that to others. We, can't, we, were, we weren't meant to do this alone, we need teams, we need co-workers, we need brothers and sisters, we need this extended family. That's the house church. The house church provides that context. It provides the co-workers that we all need to help us, to convict us, to pray for us, to model for us and for outsiders what the gospel actually looks like. Tim Keller says in Center Church how the church needs to provide safe spaces for unbelievers, right? And we do. We need to provide a safe space for unbelievers to test things, try things, see things, right? Because how else? How else does an unbeliever find God unless they have a space where they can enter into? For us, that's the house church. I mean, obviously, Sunday morning, they're certainly welcome here. This is different right, than the house church. The house church is you will see how you parent. You will see people's struggles. You'll see how they work. You'll see where they put their hopes. They will talk about their disappointments and their fears. Like That's what unbelievers need to see. If we don't feel, or if you don't feel, if you're thinking about your house church even, right, if, if you don't feel that your house church is a safe place to invite a non-believer to, we've got some issues that we need to probably address as a church. Our house churches need to be the safe spaces where we are living out the gospel and inviting people in to experience and see the gospel. They don't exist for our sake. Right? They're not small groups. It's not for us for life to make friends for life. We meet together in house churches for the sake of the ministry, for the progress of the gospel, to unite people to God. And then as an organized church, right? the organized church in Twin Cities Church's model then is the support and the foundation for the work, right? the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Right, that the, the organized church is responsible for the teaching, the preaching, the worship, to give you, to help, right, to hold the content of that teaching, right, so it doesn't get lost in the woods, right, to hold on to what the gospel is because we are so forgetful and we change things and we'll, right, we need something. There has to be something to hold on to, right, and hold the organization together to be able to help us to confront our culture, to have that kind of prophetic cultural con- confrontation, 
for us too because we are easily, right? And we've talked about this with the last week. We're so easily influenced by our cultures and that without, sometimes even a house church can get influenced by the culture, right? Or have a different cultural feel to it. You know, if you're out in the suburbs or you're in Wisconsin or you're in the middle of the city, right? We're all going to have our cultures and we need to get confronted by that. And so that's the church's responsibility. The organized church is to confront us, to preach to us, to pull us out, to call us to more and more faithfulness, to equip us for the work, to shepherd us, to bear good fruit, right? to prune us at times if we're not bearing fruit, and to spur us on in good works by providing us opportunities, spaces, equipping, and modeling. So historically, churches and Christians have either put right, more weight and responsibility either on individuals, right, and that's very much like we talked about kind of that more uh, traditional Christianity, even in that Christian nationalism world. I mean, it's very individual evangelism. That's the point. You know, just go share the gospel. Every person needs to share the gospel. Or historically, you'll put a lot of weight and expectation on the organized church, right, to be the church needs to be doing more in this world. Why doesn't the church do something more? Why hasn't the church put out a statement on this yet? Why won't the church do something about this? You know, you kind of either want to put all the weight on people and nothing on the organization, or you put it all on the organization and nothing on the people. And we don't see that as effective in our culture to go to those two extremes. It doesn't seem biblical and it doesn't seem effective with our culture and our context that we're in. But we recognize, right, it's a lot. If we're honest, if you've been in the church now for a while, you get it. If you're visiting or if you're watching this online, you're probably, probably feeling it too. Of like, That's a lot of responsibility. That's a, this church has a high buy-in. It, it does. It is hard to just be in this church without doing something or feeling pressure to do something or that weight of responsibility. This house church model is, we, we feel very convicted of it and compelled to it. I mean, every day it feels more and more viable and right for our culture and our context. But for those of us who have been laboring in this house church context for a while, you know it is costly. It's not easy. It requires a lot. It is hard, right? I mean, this, this, this words here from Paul to the church this is hard. There's a lot of pressure, right? I think there's a few things that really make this picture of church or being part of the church like this so hard. Right, the first is just the pressure. I mean, who wants to be an ambassador? I don't know if that's very good news. Every moment of my day, I'm on display. And I have to represent Christ every moment to every person in every context. I would not sign up for this. There's a reason I didn't go into politics and try to become an ambassador. (laughs) I don't want that pressure. There are parts of my life I would rather keep private. I I would like to show these parts of my life I will put fully on display because they look pretty good. But then there are other parts of my life I would rather just keep to myself. It's scary. It's hard. And there's a lot of pressure that comes with this idea of being on display all the time. Right? Which is, again, why we, we kind of revert to that. Like, we want, 
you know, the pastors to be on display in churches or the truly godly to be on display all the time, you know, because they can live up to the pressure. But of course, we all know how that goes in these churches. They never live up to the pressure. I think the other thing that makes this so hard is the seasons, like we talked about, you know, a few weeks back. Each of us find ourselves in different seasons. And as a church, we find ourselves in different seasons. And so we hear these messages about being ambassadors for Christ, doing this work of reconciliation, uniting people to God, and I, I don't have capacity. I don't have the time for this. I don't feel like I can do this. And we get frustrated so easily. We're frustrated at our own lack of capacity, or we're frustrated at the lack of capacity of others, and we blame them for, I mean, come on, suck it up and help me. I'm, I'm working here. I have been working really hard at this work of reconciling people, and so-and-so over here is just, man, they just won't do anything. They're always just home with their kids, and it's easy to be frustrated with one another and feel like right, everyone needs to be putting in the same amount of time, the same amount of efforts, doing the same things, without recognizing that we're in different seasons. And you do different things in different seasons of life. And as a house church, your house church may be in a different season. And that's where you are at. But it makes it hard. I think the final and the biggest thing, obviously, that makes this so hard, this buy-in so hard to this model, is really just our sin and our weakness. It's hard when we feel such guilt and shame. When we feel so disqualified all the time. I'm supposed to be an ambassador for Christ. How can I be an ambassador when I am filled with sin? We don't feel qualified. We don't feel strong enough. We don't feel capable to do this work. Or we vacillate between Right? And many of us have experienced that, right? Come to Christ, feeling good, sin is behind. I am now going to be an evangelist and share the gospel with the world, and then I come crashing down as sin overtakes me. Now I've got to get... It's just this up and down, these feelings of I feel super qualified for this, I feel super not qualified for this. Which really asks us, then causes us to ask some questions about whose strength are we really relying on to do this work? And really, what makes us qualified to be ambassadors for Christ? What makes us qualified for the work that Christ has given us? Because when you look at Paul as a case study, right? I mean, arguably one of the top five most influential humans who's ever lived. And he recognizes he's got a huge calling. I mean, he calls himself an apostle called by Jesus Christ. I mean, he speaks highly of himself. He gets it. He knows his calling. Yet in the same breath, like in Timothy, he can say, right, I am the chief sinner. I am the word. Not I was. I used to be. <laughs> In my old life, I used to be a sinner, but now I'm all clean. No, right? He can say, I have this incredible calling, this mission that God has given me, and I'm also the worst sinner. Whoa. We're, we're not used to people talking that way. We're not used to leaders talking that way. Right? You can't display weakness. You have to be strong. You have to have it together. You have to show that you can do this. How can he be both? How can he have confidence in his calling 
and be honest about his sin. How can we do both of those things? Right, and it really comes to where we get our verdict, where we get that qualification from. It does not come from our track record. It doesn't come from what we've done. We can't lose the qualifications. We can't gain the qualifications. They were done for us and given to us. The gospel is such good news because it's a once and for all done deal. Christ has exchanged your life for his, and everything that's true of Christ is now true of you. No matter our sin, despite our sin, in the face of our sin, God looks at us and says, this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. I find no fault in him. I find no fault in her. It's staggering. It's staggering, the love that God gives us. This is why Paul talks about being controlled by love. That kind of love controls you. It changes you. I can't earn it. I can't lose it. My qualification has nothing to do with my track record. My qualification has everything to do with Jesus' track record. She's given to me. I'm qualified because God loves me. Right, which is helpful for us because we just we we tend to think of perfection as the goal, not maturity. Right? And perfection isn't the goal. Maturity is what we're after. And maturity in the gospel does not mean that we do not sin anymore, or that sin is gone, or that I as an elder, right, don't sin, or the elders in the church are the most sinless people. Of course not. Right? An elder in the church, the mature in the church, just recognize their sinfulness the most. And their most need of Christ. That the strength doesn't come from our strength. But our strength as a church, our strength in our witness. Think of the gospel, right? Like we demonstrate the gospel to people, to the outside world. And again, we just start thinking about our lives. If we actually are thinking about people who are watching us, the people who watch us the most, they're outsiders. Are they going to come to Christ because we have our act together? Or are they going to come to Christ because they see our weakness? And they see the love with which we have and have experienced in the midst of our weakness, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our pain. That's what's winsome. We don't demonstrate the gospel to people saying, hey, you could be like me if you got your act together. Look how great my Christian life is. Don't you want that too? No, right? What we demonstrate to people is the work that Christ has done on our behalf and what he has done on their behalf. We are controlled by love, not controlled by fear. That's the mark of maturity. Right? Paul tells the church here in Corinthians, be reconciled to God. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers, people who have experienced the love of God, and he says for them to be reconciled. It is this ongoing work of letting the gospel penetrate our hearts to the very core. Like, this is the danger, is that we just kind of hear Christianity, we hear the gospel on just this surface level. Good news, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. Good news, all right. Whew, that's good, glad that's done. We don't let it control us. We don't let it penetrate our hearts to the level where we feel the love of God. We hear that voice of approval 
over all of the other voices in the world and in our culture. We need to let the gospel penetrate our hearts so that it reorders our worship so that we can live this life that we've been called to live. I mean, we recognize the cost, the cost of discipleship, right? The quote Bonhoeffer or whoever else, the cost of living the life of Christ. I mean, this, it's a high cost. But the good news is that Christ has paid that cost for us and has given us all the strength and the power that we need. But it does require us to enter into humility and weakness and to seek after Christ and his kingdom before our own. Let me pray.